Well, welcome to all of you. We're delighted and honored to have you here. And these days it's uh, imperative that we come to grips with the intention of God. It's an absolute reality. And sometimes we, you know, in a humanistic way, think we can bring it about. And it's pretty clear that he's, the evidence before us is we can't without him. And so during these days, uh, if we could uh, incline ourselves and get a solid grip on uh, the issue at hand, which is he's looking for maturity. And sometimes that's embarrassing to us when we comb our hair and think of what we've been that day. But it's good to be together always. And uh, we've never been together like this before. And so let's stand together. And look to the Lord. He's our help. Father, we thank you for <laughs> the continuing reality that you're always saying, come up hither. And when I understood what hither was, it helped. So we ask you to surround us, touch us, and let us know that uh, our life is, is in you and that, uh, as Paul said, for us to live is Christ. And so let that bond be sealed and fired in a way during these hours that is significant. And we'll give you the credit because that's where it is. In Jesus' name, amen.
temples that are made without human hands. For surely the Lord God himself has taken these temples and molded them by to his good pleasure to make vessels that are fit for honor. So despise not the, the working of the Holy Spirit in this hour, for it accomplishes great things. And grow, do not draw back from the cutting edge of that hand that desires to shape you and mold you and fit you into the, into the being that the Lord God desires to make of you. And we are not bound tonight to who we have been, but we are looking forward to the work that the Lord will do in our hearts, that he is doing. And our hearts are engaged with it tonight in faith because we believe that the outcome is good. Is it not also true that we are not orphans this night? That he has not left us alone? Isn't it true that the promise of the Father has been given to us? But isn't it also true that we have gone days without end, ignoring his presence in our life? When that provision is there for us every moment of every day. Is it not true that he has said, I am with you always, even to the end? Do, is there not a provision? Does he not bring holiness? Does he not bring the nature of the Father uh, into us? Isn't he the one that is the teacher? Will he not bypass even vessels of ministry to lead us into truth? Is he not present with you every minute? Therefore, shall we not arise this day? And welcome this one into our lives, into our midst tonight. And shall we not take him with us uh, into our days ahead? For he is the one that will lead us all the way to maturity. He is the one that will lead us into resurrection. And Father, we thank you tonight for your promise. We thank you for your provision and the priceless gift of your Holy Spirit. We enter in boldly, Lord. We enter into your throne of grace. Yeah. And we thank you, Lord, that whatever you're doing, you are faithful, God. And we yeah. choose, to, you, we choose <laughs> to see you that way, Lord, in everything. Yes.
I do want you to hear what I have to say next. Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. <laughs> oh, look at you guys. This is just such a blessing to be here. And uh, I, just, I just feel a prayer coming on. Father God, my brothers and sisters here, oh, what, uh, what, a, what a praise, what a I, uh, delight in your presence, Lord. Thank you for this place. Thank you for these leaders. Thank you for everyone that's gathered here tonight. We ask rich blessings on all. And we thank you and we glory in your, your abundant work and your abundant grace in so many levels and so many areas. Lord, our hearts are thankful tonight. Our, th our hearts are full tonight, full of praise, full of worship. Lord, you are, you are the King of kings. You are the Lord of lords. And I pray that as we <laughs> offer what feeble things we have, I pray that you use them, Lord, that you uh, will encourage all of us tonight uh, in uh, your word, in your spirit, in your way. And Lord, <laughs> we're going to give you all the thanks you're going to get all the praise, Lord, and all the glory, we promise, in Jesus' name. Amen. I'd like you to turn to the book of Hebrews tonight, the sixth chapter. I just want to say I appreciate your commitment to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and also to your commitment to the Word of God and the the learning of the Word of God and the study of the Word of God. It's a really uh, as stressful sometimes as ministering the Word of God can be to people. Uh, it really is a pleasure to minister to you because I know that you dig in there yourselves. You are, uh, I, I can say to you, uh, consider what I say and the Lord give us all understanding in all things. You know. Uh, it, so it doesn't have to be believe what I say. Uh, it can just be consider what I say. And it's a, it's a pleasure to minister to people that are truly interested in the Word of God. This is a rarity in our world today. And so uh, I appreciate that. I thank you for it. Uh, we want, uh, I'm going to tell you what I'm going to tell you. Then I'm going to give you a little introduction. Then I'm going to tell you. Okay? And if I have the presence of mind at the end, I'm going to tell you what I told you, too. All right? So uh, what I really want to talk about tonight uh, is the doctrine of Christ. The doctrine of Christ. Before we do that, I hope to share some couple little basic things of things we know that will help you understand why I even care to talk about such a thing as this tonight. Uh, we know that God's purpose... Uh, in these last days is to bring many sons unto glory. Can you say amen? amen. Do you know that word amen? amen. Let, let me hear you say it once. Amen. Oh, okay, I know you can do it. Okay, so if there, if there comes a point where it, you know, you feels like you should do that, you have the uh, true liberty, liberty of the Spirit to do so. Okay? God's purpose is to manifest some sons of God in the end of this age, our brother that wrote the Passion Translation, uh, Brian Simmons, he says so. 
I heard him on a, on a recording say so, and so if you don't take it from me or from us, at least you can take it from our brother Brian Simmons. He believes the next thing on God's timetable is the manifestation of the sons of God. We know that's true. Uh, we know also, according to John 1.12, that all who have received Christ have been given the right or the authority to become sons of God. That's important. Uh, we know that the theme of the New Testament is sonship, both in its chronicle in the Gospels of Jesus' son, son relationship with the Father as he walked upon this earth, but also uh, in the book of John and in the epistles, a exhortation, if you please, of, of the believer to continue in and walk to walk in the same kind of a sonship relationship as well. And so in this way we see that, and I believe not only the New Testament, but really the entire Bible has a theme, and that theme is sonship, which is why the book of Proverbs uh, 15 times in the first seven chapters says, My son, hear my instruction. My son, hear my words. On one level, it's, it's King Solomon talking to his son. On another level, it's, it's the king <laughs> talking to the future king. But on a bigger level, maybe the biggest level, it's Father God talking to the sons of God and, and getting them ready for some advice and then giving them some, uh, some <laughs> terrific advice uh, in the, the things of the Spirit and the ways of God. I, not only the book of Proverbs, but you know those books like Kings and Chronicles that tell us about all these kings and what they did wrong, what they did right, things that God would commend and then things that God would not commend. Why? Who cares except those who are called to one day rule and reign with Christ yeah. and who are called therefore and have the ability therefore to learn the object lessons and what those things mean when God takes the time and the trouble uh, and, and the time and trouble of preservation from the, from the moments that those things were written until this very, until this very day and so our Bible really is a, has a theme and that theme is sonship and we know that the way to get from here to there, I'm going to pause right here because it's, it truly is a big consideration. And I don't want to just talk about this lightly and say it lightly because it's not light. A, a big consideration. When you look at yourself and I look at myself, what kind of shape I'm in. Somebody said I'm not in bad shape for the shape I'm in. <laughs> When we look at the shape we're in and things are put forward to us of the things I've just mentioned, we, we ought to have the question, how in the world could I get there from here? And the answer we know is we grow. We grow day by day from glory to glory. A change is taking place and there is a further and a deeper and a better uh, conformity to the image of Christ. And so uh, that part of that growth, we know, 
is being transformed by the Spirit of God in the inner man. Uh, and that transformation, which comes by the renewing of the mind, the renewal of the inner man, uh, that transformation is in fact a conformation. And it is being conformed to the very image of Christ, which is, by the way, the express image of the Father. Praise the Lord. Mm -hmm. And so, this is for real. God is doing this. He is doing it in your life. He is doing it in my life. And this is the work that God began in you the moment you got saved. This is the purpose for which Christ died at Calvary. Not, it, his purpose was not, was not just to get you and me to become members of a church, sit in the chairs or sit in the pews, uh, give a little bit of money and, and wait for the rapture to come. Or as I've said before, get our neighbors saved and both of us wait for the rapture to come. But God has a purpose. And that purpose is our growth. But it's not just growth willy-nilly. It's growth to be conformed to the image of Christ. Now, that is a great sentiment, but the purpose for it is so that Jesus might be the firstborn among many brethren. And I need to say this as we introduce things because, oh, now it's been about two or three weeks, but in the same week, I, <laughs> I was uh, confronted with partial <coughs> sayings of Scripture. Uh, great fridge magnet fragments of scripture that in include some sentiment but don't include revelation. This is where the church is today. Marketing to religious consumers sentiment without revelation. Write that down. That's a pretty good sentence. Okay. You know, this is what the church is up to today. Marketing to religious consumers sentiment without revelation and so the sentiment became uh, it was in a devotion and then later something that somebody sent on facebook which was actually i mean it looked what sent was on facebook looked like a fridge magnet okay and it was both of them said something about it's kind of nice to be conformed to the image of christ be nice to be like jesus It'd be nice to be conformed to the image of Christ. What was missing is that he, Jesus, might be the firstborn among many brethren. God's revelation is that he will have one great, big, happy family of sons and daughters all conformed to the image of Christ. And that is not an ending point, family. That is the starting point. Amen. And everything that we're doing is so we can get to the starting point of God, the things that He will do uh, with those that love Him. Praise the Lord. And so we know that this is the good work of Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, that He began in you, and then He will complete in somebody. And I hope the somebody is us. And somebody say amen right there. Can you say that? Uh, and so uh, he's going to complete it in somebody. And, and this is perfection in the biblical sense. For the word perfect means complete. Almost always in the original Greek, not always, but almost always in our New Testament, when we see things like be per perfect or 
going on to perfection or things like that. What is being conveyed is a going on to completion. Be complete. In other words, allow God to work so that he can complete the good work in you that he began on that precious day for some of us so long ago when we first gave our hearts uh, to the Lord. And so <clears throat> connected to all of this is why I, I want to share with you tonight a little bit uh, of uh, the doctrine of Christ. And for that phrase, we're going to look in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 1. Therefore, leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ, let us go on unto perfection. Amen. So <clears throat> this doctrine of Christ and having the ability to leave it, not, not leave it because you don't like it anymore, but leave it because you, uh, you know it, you have assimilated it, you believe it, you receive it, you are living by it. Uh, when, that, when that comes along, then, then in terms of teaching and in terms of emphasis, we could leave it and look at some other things because what we've got to do, church, is we've got to let the Spirit of God so work with us that we go on to perfection. We go on to the, <laughs> to the complete completion of everything that God uh, said He will do and that He wants to do and that He is going to do in someone who allows Him to do so. And so, uh, so uh, it's an important thing, uh, this doctrine of Christ. Boy, that's a big subject. Uh, the teaching about who he is, who he was, who he is to come, what he was doing when he walked upon this earth and breathed the air you breathe and walked on the earth that your feet touch. Praise the Lord. What was he doing here? What was his purpose? What was his mission? But beyond that, what's he doing now? And what's he going to continue to do uh, on into uh, what I would term uh, eternity future? And so uh, beliefs about Jesus Christ worldwide are so numerous and they are so varied that an entire branch of theology has evolved simply to analyze and categorize those beliefs about Christ. That branch is called Christology. I, my hunch is that if you were to go to one of these seminaries and, and think you were going to, by taking a course known as Christology, if you think you're going to learn something about Christ, you could be in for a rude awakening. Yeah. <coughs> All they would probably tell you is categories and analysis of what other people at other times, or even in our own time, have thought about Christ. And so, uh, those, uh, excuse me. There is a wide range, there is a wide spectrum of beliefs about Jesus that range on the one hand from, say, the Roman Catholic view of Christ, which was basically that when he came into this earth, it was God running around here. God was running around here from the time that Jesus was a little toddler. And as a little toddler, their legends go that Jesus was doing miracles. And that's where the 
story of St. Christopher comes in. Now, if you're not Catholic, you don't understand what that's all about. But if you're old enough to remember cars that had metal dashboards, raise your hand if you can remember when cars had metal dashboards, just for, just for your knowledge. Not many people are raising their hands, okay? But when cars had metal dashboards, then things with magnets on the bottom could stick on there. And one of the things that people stuck on there was a little statue, usually a little plastic statue, of St. Christopher, because he, for the Catholic people, was the patron saint of travelers. Now, he was declared to be the patron saint of travelers by a pope that was considered, as they all have been, a pope considered to be infallible. But sometime during my lifetime, I forget exactly when, another infallible pope declared that St. Christopher really isn't a saint anymore. So he used to be a saint, and now he's not considered to be a saint anymore. But this, the reason that he was the patron saint of travelers was because of a miracle, they said, that little, little toddler Jesus performed. And the deal went like this. Little toddler Jesus wanted to get onto the other side of this river. Now, I don't know where his mother was or where his father was, but this little toddler Jesus thinks he's going to go across a river. Now, it's, too, it's a swollen river. He can't get across. And so along comes Christopher uh, in the legend, and Christopher puts little toddler Jesus up on his shoulders, and he takes, attempts to take him across the river, and Jesus did the miracle that made it so that the waters never rose above Christopher's shoulders so that Jesus and Christopher could get onto the other side of the river, and that's why he was known as the patron saint of travelers, okay? Revealing the idea that they had that Jesus was sort of just, just God running around and using inherent powers of divinity to do all kinds of stuff. In their mind, the miracles that he performed, the wisdom that he shared, the walk that he had, uh, and, and all that he endured was simply because he was God. He's God doing these things. And so uh, you have that uh, on the one hand. Along with that, you have people that existed at the time that Paul was writing this. The docetai, the it seems people that believe that Jesus, though he was real, he didn't have a flesh and blood body, they said. They said it just seems like. Jesus had a flesh and blood body, but he really didn't. So that, that's why they were called the docetai, the it seems. And so, you know, it seemed like he was hungry, but he really wasn't. It seemed like he was tired, but he really wasn't. Uh, now, if you, of course, if you carry their logic to its complete end, then it would just seem like he died on the cross, but he really didn't. Or it would just seem like he rose from the dead. But he really didn't. But they never take their logic to its full conclusion. Okay. And so, so there's, those are a couple of the varied beliefs of, about Jesus. Nowadays, there are plenty of religious groups that consider Jesus to be simply a great man. Maybe the greatest product of the human race. Others. Uh, a great man, a great teacher, a great prophet. Uh, that would include Islam, but that would also include Jehovah's Witnesses. 
uh, great man yet, but not the Son of God. Uh, we, they wouldn't go that far with it. Uh, I was reading about a group that believed, and this is so disappointing to me, a group that believed that Jesus achieved divinity and was rewarded with divinity at his water baptism. They believed that he was just a guy like you and me, but he, he was an obedient guy. He had a revelation, this guy. And so at his water baptism, divinity was conferred upon him, they believed. Well, we could go on and on. There's all kinds of nuances and all kinds of variations. Uh, and so uh, the purpose of Christology is simply to analyze them and to uh, categorize them for Christian groups, quasi-Christian groups, pagan groups, makes hardly uh, any difference. You know that it took seven, but the first seven major church councils and 300 years for the early church to come to some kind of an agreement and a unified statement as to who they believed Jesus is and was, okay? I want to tell you that I, I hope that this is, impresses you with the futility of man, okay? It took seven church councils, and it took 300 years before the church got to some kind of a unified statement on these things, but even the unified statement wasn't all that unified because some of the groups split off from the rest of them because they didn't believe it, such as the Nestorians. The Nestorians took off because they didn't believe in this unified statement that they had come up with. And so all of this makes it sound like that it, it, it must be very complex. It must be hard to know and hard to understand and yet uh, juxtaposed to, to all of that thinking is Paul's statement in <laughs> Hebrews 6 and 1. He says, therefore leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ and he says that because he's already laid them out. And where would I find them? I would find them in chapters 1 through chapter 5 of the book of Hebrews. Paul laid it out very clearly. He said, and so now, now that we know all of this, now that you know, we kind of say, hey, we've done a good job on this, now let's go on into perfection. Let's take on some other things. Reading it again, therefore leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ, let us go on unto perfection. And I'll finish the thought, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God. All these things are good. Of the doctrine of baptisms and of laying on of hands and of the resurrection of the dead and of eternal judgment. And this will we do if God permit. Praise the Lord. And so uh, he, he makes it sound simple. Uh, I want to say that uh, I, I uh, realize that when we consider things like the incarnation, we are thinking about something, we are looking at something that truly our own human carnal minds cannot wrap around. The whole idea is bigger than a man can grasp. It seems to be bigger than all of us if we all put all of our minds together would still never be able to get it wrapped around this tremendous mystery that had to happen for our salvation, this incarnation. Uh, and so uh, uh, I, I, I want to say that. And so, uh, so it seems like 
that we can know what Paul means by the doctrine of Christ. What was Paul's thinking? What was Paul's revelation? What is he referring to when he talks about this uh, doctrine of Christ? And we're going to talk about that in a second, but before we do, I just want to throw in one little sentence or two on why it matters. Brother Dan, why would it matter whether I know about this or I don't know about this? Young people, <laughs> I mean, you could be looking at me going, okay, dude, what, what exactly is the, is the deal here and what, why is it so important? Well, uh, I want to talk about that. Number one, we've already sort of covered it because in order to go on to perfection, we need to know it. We need to, we need to embrace it. We need to foundationalize it. We need to assimilate it and live by it and understand it so that uh, we can, in terms of teaching and in terms of emphasis, leave it safely behind, not knowing that it won't be perverted, knowing that it won't be lost, knowing that it won't be destroyed. Uh, you know, but, but secondly, and I think perhaps more importantly, uh, the reason that it's important is because in the main passages, that the, the main Christological passages, uh, two teachings are intertwined. I'm going to say this again because I hope you remember this part. In the main Christological passages in our New Testament, now there aren't many, in the main ones you'll find two teachings that are intertwined. One, yes, is the teaching about Christ, but the second is a teaching about you teaching about me and our need to grow every time the subject comes up in our New Testament about the 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 verities of Christ and these things that are spoken of him that we can count on the other thing that is mentioned in the very same breaths in the very same passages uh, are uh, concerning our need to grow and to become the people that God wants us to be too. So for this reason, I, to me, the two are, the two are linked. And so uh, what is Paul's doctrine of Christ? Let's go back to uh, the first chapter of Hebrews. And I want to mention uh, just, just a couple high spots uh, to bring it up to speed. Paul's doctrine of Christ, interestingly, chapter 1, which is so beautiful, uh, and I think I'll just read from verse 1 quickly, God who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, you'll see the sonship theme here, uh, by whom also he made the world who, being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high, being made so much better than the angels, as he hath by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. For unto which of the angels said he at any time, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. And again, I will be to him a father, 
and he shall be to me a son. Now, I just want to mention two things just in, in passing. We're not really going to minister on this, but you can see according to verse 1 and 2 that Jesus is better than prophets, and ch the church's infatuation with prophets in the year 2023 belies, a, a, to me, a lack of understanding of how great Jesus Christ is. When you have the Son, He has spoken to you by the Son, praise the Lord. When you have the Son, you don't need lesser things. God used to do that stuff, but He don't do that stuff anymore because He speaks to you and to me. And anybody who will listen, He speaks by His Son, praise the Lord. Not only that, but it goes on, it literally says that Jesus is better than angels. And the infatuation that comes and goes, I don't think it's in vogue right now, but maybe 10 years ago or so it was, and it probably will be again. There, all, there comes all these testimonies and all these books and all these different things going on. Probably They'll probably have some films on YouTube by the time it's all over with of angels of 20 feet tall and, and all these different kinds of things that, that the church is interested so much in angels and yet you've already got our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ you don't we don't need angels much less the worship of them much less the veneration of them right and so I stop there because this next verse you know it says in verse 6 and again when he bringeth in the first begotten into the world he saith and let all the angels of God worship him praise the lord and so in the first chapter the first thing we start with and i don't want to belabor this and i don't want to put too much on this but i think it's important to see that where he starts with is jesus the divine the divine jesus let all the angels of god worship him and they did but not only they the wise men worshiped him too the disciples worshiped him the Canaanite woman worshipped him. The ruler worshipped him. The demoniac mm -hmm. right. living among the graves worshipped him. Which I've just got to stop and say. So you think you're having a bad day. <laughs> how, come you're not, how come you're not excited about Jesus? How come you don't have any energy in worship? Well, I've got some troubles. <laughs> you don't have troubles like that guy had. Uh, well, I just can't bring myself to go to church. I just can't bring myself to raise my hands and give my praise to the Lord and Savior of the universe. Jesus can't do it because I got some mental problems. I got some emotional issues. Let me tell you something. This guy had a minimum of 2,000 demons. And depending on when it was in history, a legion could be anywhere from 2,000 to 12,000. It just depends. And so he had somewhere between 2,000 and 12,000 demons, every one of them resisting him. But brother, when he decided that he was going to go to Jesus, 12,000 devils couldn't stop him. And nothing can stop you. And nothing can stop me if the intention and the desire of our heart is to, is to fall before our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's what he did. And you know that he was delivered. Praise the Lord. Not only that, but the, after the resurrection, the, the, the women of the company worshipped him. They held him by his feet and worshipped him. And not only that, but as he was ascending uh, into the heavenly dimension, the disciples worshipped him then. 
And not only that, but in Revelation chapter 5, the whole crowd around the throne is worshiping the Lamb. And so with this thought in mind, he introduces Jesus first to us from the divine standpoint. That's not the only standpoint. And if this part makes you mad, I'm sorry. I'll probably make the other half mad in about five minutes, okay? So, uh, but, uh, it, but it's important to see, to, to see this. And uh, I would like you, if you don't mind, to turn over to Psalm 45. Well, well let me read this first, then we'll go there. You know, uh, after verse 6. Seven and of the angels he saith, who maketh his angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire, but unto the Son he saith, Thy throne, O God. This is a really good scripture for this divine aspect of things. But unto the Son he saith, Thy throne, O God. So it's pretty hard to not see that the Son uh, is God. Unto the Son he saith, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of thy kingdom. Now I want you to, from there, then turn over to Psalm 45, which this is a quotation of. We're looking at the doctrine of Christ. Who he is, who he was. Psalm 45, verse 6. Thy throne, O God is forever and ever. The scepter of thy kingdom is a right scepter. Thou lovest righteousness and hatest wickedness. Therefore God, thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. Uh, and then I'd also like you to look at the 110th Psalm while you're in the book of Psalms. In between a short quotation from the 110th Psalm in Hebrews 1, there is another batch from uh, uh, Psalm 102, uh, but we don't need to look at that. But the idea of the quotation from Psalm 102 is sort of reiterates the 45th Psalm in that you have the Father speaking to the Son and calling the Son divine. And so not only... Uh, in the verse we just read, but also verse 8 and 9, you'll also see that taking place there uh, in Hebrews 1. But in the 110th Psalm, which is famous to us for its fourth verse, the Lord has sworn and will not repent, Thou, Jesus, art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Praise the Lord. But it's famous in another way too from verse 1, a verse that gets quoted uh, by... Uh, 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 Jesus and also gets quoted by Peter Mark chapter 12 Acts chapter 2 Jesus on the one hand Peter on the other are quoting this verse it says the Lord said unto my Lord sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool and so uh, there's more to this than that but I just want you to see how uh, you know, when Jesus quoted it, he said, how, how is it that the scribes say that, they, you know, that uh, the, the Messiah is David's son, right? When it actually says, the Lord said unto my Lord. And so, as Joe pointed out recently in, uh, at home, uh, Jesus is not only the offspring of David. <laughs> Revelation says he is both the root and offspring of David. The same guy at the same 
time in the same place is both the root or the progenitor of David and also the offspring uh, of the saint. And so uh, these uh, are uh, important things. Uh, but then I'd like you to turn to the second chapter of Hebrews because his, his uh, presentation quickly turns to Jesus the man. For there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. Praise the Lord. And so uh, while uh, it's, uh, it, it, men could find uh, uh, dissertations, they could find uh, differing points of view, uh, they could find arguments in terms of who Jesus was, I think you and I both know that what was really important to us is not so much who he was as how he functioned. How did Jesus of Nazareth function as he walked upon this earth? I don't even have it written down in my notes, but Acts 10, chapter 38 says this, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth, who went about doing good and healing all that were oppressed of the devil. How did he do that? He was anointed of the Father to do that. And that introduces a very, a very, very important uh, concept, uh, not only relative to Jesus, <laughs> but look at me, it's relative to you. It's something that you and I have to learn uh, in our own lives as well. And so he, though he starts out and doesn't deny and lays a good foundation for the div Christ's divinity, yet his emphasis from chapter 2, and following falls more on his humanity and with good reason. And so chapter 2, verse 6, well, verse 5, For unto the angels hath he not put in subjection the world to come whereof we speak. There's a certain logic that he uses in verse 5 by telling you what it isn't. He introduces the subject by telling you what it isn't. And, you, and he uses that very same approach uh, a little bit later, and I'm not going to keep you in the dark. He uses that approach in verse 16 as well. But in verse 5, uh, he's, you know, he tells us what it isn't. It's not angels that is going to be in charge of the world to come. But it does bring up a, a good question. Well, if it isn't angels, then who is it going to be? God has determined that the world to come is going to be under, is going to be in subjection under somebody. And then he answers who the somebody is, praise the Lord, in the next verse. It says, but one in a certain place testified, saying, what is man? Not what is angels, but what is man that thou art mindful of him, or the son of man that thou visitest him. And now, in verse 7, I believe referring to Adam when he was originally formed and when the breath of life was first breathed into him before sin came into the picture it says thou madest him a little lower than the angels sometimes when I read this verse I like to say I like to think uh, yeah he, he didn't make man just a little higher than a gorilla <laughs> people of the world might think things like that but don't let the idea of evolution crossed the mind of a believer. Uh, thou madest him not just a little higher than a gorilla, 
thou madest him originally just a little lower than the angels. Speaking about man in general, thou crownest him with glory and honor and didst set him over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things in subjection under his feet, for in that they put all in subjection under him. He left nothing that is not put under him. But now, in the year 2023, now, we see not yet all things put under him, that is, under man. But we see Jesus. Somebody say, we see Jesus. <clears throat> say it with more conviction than that. We see Jesus. We see Jesus who was, who was made a little lower than the angel. And the description of Jesus is the same description as man in the beginning. That's also very significant. So we see Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death. Angels can't die. Angels don't die. But he had to be made lower than the angels. He had given a, a level of life lower than the angels because he had to die. That's the whole point of this. Uh, not the whole point. A big part of the point was that the suffering of death uh, was what was going to be the thing that was going to bring about our salvation, our redemption. We see him uh, a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death. We see him now crowned with glory and honor that he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. Then the verse that I quote a lot of times, and so does a lot of us, for it became him for whom are all things and by whom are all things, and bringing many sons unto glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. Praise the Lord. And so uh, it's, uh, uh, we, we go on in verse 11 uh, and, and seeing uh, more clearly how he functioned as a man. Uh, For both he that sanctifieth and they who are sanctified are all of one. <clears throat> There's a lot of answers to the question, all of one what? But the answer that I see tonight is that they are all of one humanness. They are all of one common relationship with the Father, if they would. For which cause he, Jesus, is not ashamed to call them, that would be us included, he's not ashamed to call them brethren. Hallelujah! And so, uh, and that's what you and I mean to him. You realize he's not ashamed of you? You say, well, he should be. <laughs> Brother Dan, if you knew the things that I've done, you'd realize that he should be ashamed of me. He's not. He's not ashamed of you. He's not ashamed of me. He's not ashamed to call me. Come yeah. on, well, I don't know about you, but me. This is a revelation. Believe me. Uh, he's not ashamed to call me his brother. And then he says in verse um, uh, 12, saying, I will declare thy name unto my brethren. In the midst of the church will I sing praise unto thee. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children which God hath given me. So then 14 hones the picture even clearer for as much then as the children, that would be us, are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same. I believe that was written to combat the docetai. The docetai that said, well, it just seemed like he had flesh and blood, but, blood, but he really didn't. Uh, he was sure to say in here, no, actually he did. He had flesh and blood. He took part of the same, uh, end of verse 14, that through death, this was not a, uh, it was not a pantomime, uh, you know, it was not a charade. It was a real death that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death. That is the devil. And the only way that could happen is if he went through it and overcame it and deliver them who through fear and, and, and killed it and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For verily, 
He took not on him the nature of angels. And once again, that same logic, he, he starts it off by telling you what it's not. Then he, then he tells you what it is. He took not on him the nature of angels. Oh, but he did take on him a nature. It just wasn't the nature of angels that he took on him. For verily he took not on him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham. I'm going to just paraphrase it and say he took on him human nature. And when I say human nature, I don't mean fallen human nature. I don't mean sinner man human nature. I don't mean unrighteous human nature. I mean he took on him that human nature that, that is not corrupt and yet is not corrupt. Not, not, not incorruptible. A nature that could sin or a nature that could not sin. Praise the Lord. And so uh, the first man, Adam, seemed like he had something like that where he was, when he was first formed and God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life uh, and he was made a living soul. So he wasn't just some animal and the life that was breathed into his nostrils uh, was a special, unique act of creation that our Bible records only being done for man. He did not do that for green alligators, nor longed neck geese, nor humpity back camels, nor chimpanzees, okay? Nor cats, nor rats, nor elephants, okay? No, he just did that for man, and in, make, in bringing that breath of life into man, keeping in mind the connection in Hebrew between breath and spirit, and keeping in mind that when Jesus in John 20 breathed on his disciples, Amen. he said, receive ye the Holy Ghost. It seems like Adam was empowered, was endued with the Spirit of God, which made him a man. Something less would not be a man. The first man, Adam, was made a living soul, and that's, that's as far as he got. <laughs> seems like that was his best day. The day he was created, that's as far as he ever went. He became a living soul, and that's it. But our Lord, by contrast to our Lord and Savior Jesus, it seems to me when he was born in this world, he was born, born again. He was born alive. I mean, what else could he be? He was conceived of the Holy Ghost. Praise the Lord. And so that same Holy Spirit that was breathed, I believe it was the Holy Spirit, that was breathed into Adam's nostrils, was responsible for the most amazing miracle of incarnation this world has ever seen. Who ever heard of such a thing? And yet it was prophesied in the book of Isaiah, Behold, a virgin shall conceive. Whoa! Hallelujah! And when that angel appeared to little Mary, and she said, be it unto me according to thy word. I believe right at that moment was the overshadowing of the Holy Spirit. In fact, the months that are given as far as Elizabeth and her journey to see Elizabeth and all that, kind of like a Sudoku puzzle, there's only one solution. And to get all those timings right, the solution is that Mary had to get pregnant like right then, okay? And so she, and why do I say this? I say this because when you said yes to Jesus, it was not a metaphor. It was not a figure of speech when we say you're born again. It's not just a fancy way of saying I'm going to try to do better next time. But you were really, truly 
born from above. And a conception, as it were, really took place. Now, it didn't take place in your body. Hello, take a look. <laughs> Are you kidding me? <laughs> it didn't take place in your soul. At least, leastwise, not yet. But there is a part of you, the deepest part of you, your spirit, that has been quickened. Something's been quickened. You were dead in trespasses and sins, but now you're quickened. Well, what's quickened? It's not your body. It's not your soul. At least not in, in its entirety. Uh, but the, that, that spirit of man is the candle of the Lord. When he comes into contact with the igniting power of the Spirit of God, that candle gets lit. And you know what happens? What happens is exactly what Proverbs says it happens. It begins to search all the inward parts of the belly. And that's why you're not satisfied with where you are. I don't care how spiritual you are, you're not satisfied. That's not bad, that's good. <laughs> I don't mean that you should be impatient. I don't mean that you should condemn yourself. But no matter what, where you've ever, what you've ever achieved, there's still something in the Spirit that is reaching forward, that is pressing onward. I, Paul, is there anybody that knew God, it was Paul. And yet Paul, because of this activation in his Spirit, said that I might know Him. Paul, if you don't know Him, nobody knows Him. And yet Paul said, but I don't know Him like I'm going to know Him. There's more to this. And I want the more. I want to go on unto perfection. And I know you do. And that's why I'm talking about these things. Praise the Lord. And so, uh, so you can see from the second chapter uh, there, and it's important, verse 17, uh, Wherefore in all things it behooved Him to be made like unto His brethren. So when Jesus came into this world, He was made like unto His brethren. That's you and me. He was not made like unto a sinner man. He was made like unto His brethren. Those that have the Spirit of God. Those that are walk, able to walk in the Spirit of God. Why? That He might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. Let me explain. The only way that He could make reconciliation for sins is if He was functioning as a man in a faith relationship with God. The only way that He could be a faithful and merciful high priest. Faithful is when he represents you and me and he faces the Father. The Father looks at you and me through a faithful high priest. Merciful is when he looks at you and me. He faces us and he represents the Father. He represents the Father to us and He represents us to the Father. That's what a priest does. And in His case, he's, when we look at the Father through Him, here's what we see. Mercy. Somebody say amen. amen. Through Christ, we see mercy. Praise the Lord. Not because you're so great and not because I'm so great. Because He's so great. Hallelujah. And to be that merciful and faithful high priest, Jesus had to function upon this earth as a man in a faith relationship with God. In other words, having no more than you and I have to work with. In the verse that we quote sometimes, for since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection from the dead. Let me say it again. I like it. 
For since by man came death, this is the economy of God, you know. It's just fitting. Everything God does is fitting. It's appropriate. Since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection from the dead. In other words, an angel couldn't do it. A million angels couldn't do it. A man had to do it. It couldn't be the first man. He was done for. It couldn't be a descendant of the first man. Because every descendant of the first man was a slave to sin. Because the first man, Adam, yielded his members, servants, to obey sin. And the very first law that we have in our Bible after the Ten Commandments is the law of slaves. And it goes like this. The children of slaves are slaves. You don't think it's fair? Tough. You don't like it? Too bad. You have another idea? Go start your own universe. Okay? In this universe, according to God, the children of slaves are slaves. And that's the passage, you know, if you're in your master's house and he gives you a wife and you have children and you, you take upon it yourself, you're going to leave. I don't want to be here anymore. Oh, you can go, but your wife can't and your children can't. They still belong to the master. So now you've got a big choice to make. Are you going to take off all by yourself, leave your family behind, or are you going to put your ear to the door and let him bore it through with an awl to signify that you're no longer on probation? There's no longer a test. You said, I want to stay in the house of my master forever. So the law of, the law of slaves is, like it or not, the children of slaves are slaves, which means that there wasn't anyone that could be born with Adam as his father that could bring about the redemption. It's all tainted. God could not have formed another man from the dust of the ground and started over because the ground was cursed. The ground was cursed even before God pronounced the curse. Sin did it. Sin cursed it. So the only thing that could happen, if there was ever going to be a second man that could set all this stuff right, that second man was going to have to come from heaven. He's going to, the, the second man, it says in Corinthians, is the Lord from heaven. And that's why Enoch's prophecy, 700 years after the, the, first, prophet, the, the first promise of God of redemption, that first promise being, I'm going to send the seed of the woman. And he's going to defeat the devil, although the devil's going to crush his heel. The seed of the woman's going to crush his head. About 700 years later, somewhere between 600 and 800 years, I mean, comes the word from Enoch. And Enoch, if you're listening, he's giving you the answer. Who's it going to be? Enoch says, behold, the Lord cometh. You didn't shout, but you should have. Behold, the Lord cometh with 10,000s of his saints and so the first word was about the beginning of all of the the redemption process but that next word was highlighting the end of the redemption promise the lord cometh not by himself the lord cometh with ten thousands of his saints hello saints and that, so we won't do it but you could hone in on mount zion right now and see the lamb standing there with one hundred and forty-four thousand saints that are standing there with him praise the lord and so uh that that's the effect that's what we're talking about we're talking about some sons of god we're talking about those who who will have the father's name in their foreheads too praise the lord and in many many ways like that uh they will be uh like him praise the lord and so uh now in this 
I, I just want to emphasize something. And, and when we talk about being conformed to the image of Christ, when we talk about growing, I've heard the brothers say this several times, and it is absolutely right, I believe. And that is that this growth process is a growth in learning absolute dependence upon God in all things, all the big things, all the little things, all the good things, all the bad things, everything in between. We're learning. We're learning to lean. They sing that gospel song, learning to lean. Oh, not, not learning to lean is like, is like learning to, to be carried by the Lord. So dependent upon Him. And, and, uh, and that's important because uh, this, this walk that Jesus had, this walk by faith, this walk led by the Spirit caused Him to say things like, I can of mine own self do nothing. And He meant it. It wasn't a religious phrase. It was real. And he said, I can, I can only do what I see my Father doing. And he said, I can only say what I hear my Father saying. There in many other places, we, we are attuned to the kind of relationship that he had, the kind of relationship that matters. And what I'm saying tonight is, the kind of relationship that, it, that is available for you and me to have through our redemption, through Christ Jesus. Praise the Lord. And so, uh, uh, I remember when I first started to minister along the lines of, Jesus was a man. I just used to get up and just say it. Jesus was a man. I wouldn't qualify it much. A little bit. Oh man, people got mad, I'm telling you. After the conventions, I don't know where all the ministers went, but I was end up backed up against a wall like this with a, literally a queue of people waiting to take their turns at me. You know, they come with their spiritual swords, you know, to bring up this scripture and try to bring up that scripture and this scripture and that scripture. And it, interestingly, one of the, the recurring uh, proofs that I was wrong was that they would say, well, no, no. He could have called ten. He could have called twelve legions of angels, and I would say, no, he couldn't. And they yes, he could. Where would you get that from? They said, we got it from the Bible. I said, no, you didn't. I said, read it. What it's, what he said was, even now, I could pray to my Father, and He would send twelve legions of angels. Even there, it's not like Jesus is going to call on this. Jesus is going to do that. Jesus is going to do the other thing. But He would. In dependency, in humility, in trust, in faith, moving by the Spirit of God, he he could have prayed to the Father, and if he if he would have asked to have been led off that way, I, I guess the Father would have would have acceded, uh, but thank God he didn't. And you're allowed to say thank God he didn't. <laughs> Praise the Lord. And so, uh, so uh, just a, a little bit word about the, the fallen man. <clears throat> I think sometimes we. We, we get a little bit confused because we still call these beings, over seven billion of them on our planet that's walking around this earth, we call them men. And, and, and Adam was a man. Adam was the first man. Jesus was the second man. And yet we, it can be a little bit confusing when we call these beings men 
but I would put forward for your consideration that what we're really doing is just calling, calling them by a name what, they, what it used to be because we don't know what else to call. Uh, years ago, I was in Rome, and when I was in Rome, I did what tourists in Rome do. I went to see the Colosseum and <clears throat> took a taxi, and I said, you know, where do you want to go? I said, Colosseum. Knew right where to go. Everybody knows where the Colosseum is. There were signs near the Colosseum. Colosseum, there's an arrow that way. That's the Colosseum. And yet, when you get to the Colosseum, <laughs> what you see is a ruin. It's not functioning as the Colosseum. There's nothing going on there. It's just some crumbled up walls and stuff that you can see what it used to be like, sort of. Some of the framework was still there, but it no longer is what it used to be, but still called by what it used to be called. So it is with man. Man is ruined without Christ. Man in himself is, is just that kind of a ruin. He doesn't function either. Uh, but yet, even in fallen man, you can see the vestiges of the nobleness of the creation that God first did. Uh, see, in, in Genesis 5, you don't have to turn there, check me out. In Genesis 5, it says, In the image of God created he him, male and female created he them. Now there's a good verse, the anti-woke verse, for today is <laughs> male and female and nothing else male and female created he them okay but beyond that I've heard folks say that this isn't true but it is true God did create Adam in his image but he didn't create him in his express image there's images but then there's images. For example, if you were to say to me, Dan, please draw me a horse. Give me a piece of paper and a crayon. And I would draw you what I would hope would be enough of an image of a horse that you would recognize it. Okay? Assuming that I could do that, and that's up, that's up, for, that's up in the air. I don't know. But assuming that I could do that and not show you my horse... You would say, oh, well, that's, a, that's an image of a horse. I mean, it's not the image of a green alligator or long-necked geese, okay? It's not some other animal. I see a head, I see a mane, I see four legs, I see a body, I see a tail. Okay, it must be a horse. But where's a lady in Ava, uh, Katie West. She's an artist, and she specializes in horses. She drew that mural there at the, at the post office. Those horses look alive. That looks like a real horse. You know? So, what Katie draws is an image of a horse. <laughs> what Dan might draw is kind of, sort of, an image of the horse. But, see, when, when God brought Adam into this, well, when he formed him and he breathed the breath of life in him, there, was, there, was an, there were aspects in which he was created in the image of God. And we can still see some of the vestiges of that. What do I mean by that? I mean that man, even in his ruined condition, can think logically. He can remember far back. He can play chess. Uh, he can read a book. He can build stuff. He can appreciate beauty. 
He understands what a rhyme is when he reads poetry. There aren't any animals that can do those kind of things in, in these, these kind of ways. And in his moral sense, even in its ruined condition, there is some kind of something in most people that is a moral sense, which is a leftover. It's like the ruins of the Colosseum. You can see kind of what it used to be. But, you know, take the whatever beauty there might be in that, multiply it by a million times, and you might begin to approach what man was originally created as. Don't confuse that with these beings that's walking around on this earth today. Ecclesiastes 3 says they're beasts. doesn't say they're men. And laments the fact that after sin came into our world, that they, it says that the breath of man isn't any different than the breath of beasts. Even though at one time he was inbreathed by God himself. And so it says they all have one breath. That's what it says. They all have one breath. Which means that's where bad breath comes from. <laughs> Sin will give you bad breath. That's for sure. But you get the point. And so uh, uh, don't confuse what God originally did with these ruins that we're looking at from, from day to day. Okay. Uh, the the uh, verse uh, uh, Hebrews chapter five. I want to give you a couple uh, instances where this doctrine of Christ includes you and me. And the reason why it's important is because we are drawn into this uh, conversation. It's not just about Him. And so, uh, first, in uh, Hebrews 5, <clears throat> and in progressively in Hebrews, uh, for example, uh, in chapter 4, if you look at uh, uh, verse 14, Hebrews 4.14, speaks more of the humanity of Christ and the mystery of this, of this incarnation, etc. Seeing then that we have a great high priest that has passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. Because it's not just about what he's doing, it's about what you're doing. Are you holding fast your profession? Am I holding fast mine? For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, then one of the most important three letters you're ever going to read, yet without sin. Praise the Lord. Uh, yes, he was tempted, but more important than that, it was yet without sin. He retained that blamelessness. He retained that perfection. Uh, he re retained that, in, that, that uh, lack of corruption, praise the Lord, so that he was yet without sin and you and I can be saved. Verse 16 Here's where the rubber starts to meet the road. Let us therefore come boldly, let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. I'm going to come back to that verse at the very end, which is coming up shortly. All right, then chapter 5, uh, verse 4. Picking up right in the middle. You've read this many times. And no man taketh this honor unto himself, but he that is called of God, as was Aaron, so also Christ glorified not himself to be made an high priest, but he that said unto him, Thou art my son, today have I begotten thee, as he saith also in another place. And here comes a, 
a quotation of the 110th Psalm again, thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And now comes a description of a man. A dependent man. A desperate man. A man to whom his relationship with the Father means more than life itself. Praise the Lord. It says, who in the days of his flesh, when he, Jesus, had offered up prayers and supplications with strong crying and tears unto him that was able to save him from death and was heard in that he feared. Jesus feared. He wasn't taking anything for granted. He wasn't saying, hey, I'm a spiritual big shot. Hey, I'm divine. Hey, I'm this, I'm that. He was heard in that he feared, praise the Lord. And then, uh, and those are great words for you and me. Great words to think about. Great words to begin to, to uh, uh, begin to live by. Verse 8, though he, Jesus, were a son, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered. So it's one thing to be a son, to be called a son, but, it's a, but that doesn't get you automatically to your goal. There's something's got to happen. You learn obedience. Now the only, and I've said this, uh, I used to say this a lot, the only way to learn obedience is by obeying. Okay? I know we think that children learn obedience by disobeying and then, then being punished for their disobedience. That doesn't teach a child obedience. What that teaches a child is <laughs> that they ought to learn obedience. <laughs> but the only way to actually learn obedience itself is by obeying. And this is what Jesus did. Jesus never disobeyed. Well, if he never disobeyed, then why do you have to learn? Because you learn by obeying. There's levels and levels and levels. Verse 9. And being made perfect. He wasn't born perfect. He didn't start out perfect upon this earth. But he was made perfect. And being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation. Now here comes obedience again. Unto all them that obey him. Obey him. Called of God and high priest after the order of Melchizedek, of whom we have many things to say and hard to be uttered, seeing ye are dull of hearing. For what? And here, here we come. He's saying, now you ought to grow. You ought to be grown already. You should have already taken this to heart and been farther than you are, Dan. For when for the time you ought to be a teacher, Dan, ye have need that one teach you again, which be the first principles of the oracles of God, and are become such as have need of milk, and not of strong meat. For everyone that useth milk is unskillful in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But strong meat belongeth to them that are of full age, even those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. We're in the conversation. <coughs> he talks about Christ in order to talk about you and me. And of course, then it goes on, therefore leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ, so on and so forth. A brief trip to Philippians chapter 2. I want, I want you to see in another Christological passage how that it, it isn't only that subject that is being spoken of in Philippians 2 famous passage and we quote it different parts of it for different reasons notice in the beginning it's talking about us our life our walk in the spirit our attitudes the way that we should be growing right now it says 
If there be therefore any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels and mercies, fulfill ye my joy that ye be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through strife or vain glory, but in loneliness of mind let each esteem other better than themselves. And I just add to that, for real. <laughs> He's not asking you and me to pull religious charades, but actually really be this way, and actually think this way, and feel this way. Let God help us. Let help us to esteem other better than ourselves. Verse 4. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. And then verse 5 is a great transition. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Now here we go. Now we're, go now we're going into Christology all of a sudden. Talking about us. And then there's this passage. It's beautiful. It's revelatory. Uh, uh, who, who, who being in the form of God thought it not robbery to be here it comes equal with God equal with God okay verse 7 but made himself of no reputation we know in the original it really says emptied himself but he emptied himself and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men and being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. So far, in verse 6, we have Jesus before he ever showed up on planet Earth. Sort of eternity passed until that point. He was in the form of God and thought it not robbery to be equal with God or equality with God as a thing to be grasped. He didn't need to grasp it. But then in verse 7 and 8, talks about that 33 and a half time, uh, 33 and a half year time period on this earth, uh, you know, I, I make a, as though it was a parenthesis in eternity. I'm not sure that, I, that's probably not the best way to, to describe it. But in, in that time period, he made himself of no reputation, etc., etc. But then verse 9 begins to, to transition from time on this earth all the way out into eternity future. Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name, which is above every name. There's a revelation, people, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of things in heaven and things on earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And back when he said, let all the angels of God worship him, I had an interesting thought the other day about that. We normally think about all the good angels of God worshiping him voluntarily and loving every minute of them. Say, holy, 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 with big smiles, right? But it says, let all be. That might include that other third, the bad ones. There might be the force of God that whether they want to or they don't want to, let all the angels of God worship Him. Whether that has happened in the past or that's something that is only reserved for the future, I'll tell you what, there could be grimacing, there could be growling, but you can just see those knees just starting to bend and the, the force and the power of God making sure that let all the angels of God worship Him. Verse 12, Wherefore, my beloved, as, as ye have all... See, now, it, it, it transitions back to us now. 
had this beautiful revelation, but then he's talking about us. Wherefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God which worketh in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure, do all things without murmurings and disputings, that ye may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God, without rebuke in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation, among whom ye shine as lights in the world. And finally, I do want to end up Hebrews chapter 4. I wanted you to see how we're drawn into this conversation. Tremendous passages. Really, almost the only passages we really have that really shed lots of light on the, the purpose and nature of Jesus and, and the, Paul's understanding of the doctrine of Christ. And yet, in, the, in those cases, what's really going on is it's drawing you and me into the picture and talking about our need to grow. Hey, you should be teachers. You know. Uh, uh, and and the, uh, the, the passage there, uh, and, and you should be sons of God without rebuke. Quit whining and start shining. Okay? <laughs> you know, stop blaming your lack of growth on your environment. How many, you know how many guys have said to me, you know, I'd do a lot better if I worked in a different place. How can you soar like an eagle? when you work with a bunch of turkeys, right? You know? Well, yes, it's a crooked and perverse nation. Okay, shine anyways. And therefore, be or be training as sons of God without rebuke in the midst of all of that. Hebrews 4, and the reason that I dared to get up here tonight is because two of the songs that we sang quoted this verse. And this is going to be my last verse. This is, I mean, if, if this doesn't light your fire, your wood's wet, okay? That's just all there is to it. And so, and, and we've read it once already, but I want to emphasize our, our, the, our place, uh, our, uh, our privilege, how we've been blessed. When we sing of the grace of God, we realize the grace of God is able to, and, and, and the grace of God is given so that God can forgive us. But the grace of God is given so that God can deliver us. The grace of God is given so that God can heal us. But the grace of God is given so that God can provide what needs to be provided. But beyond that, the grace of God is given uh, to transform us. And it's all grace. And we need every last bit of it, right? And so it says in the, this fourth chapter, when we read about the high priest and all that, but let's just end with verse 16. This is not 3.16, this is 4.16. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16. Well, all we've said tonight, this is what it boils down to. Let us therefore come. Let us therefore come Boldly. Amen. Jesus came, see. We come. Jesus came boldly to the throne of grace. We, let us therefore come boldly. Because see, verse 15 is talking about Jesus, but verse 16 is talking about us. Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace. 
to help in time of need. What time of need? You need forgiveness? There's grace for forgiveness. You need deliverance? There's grace for deliverance. Praise the Lord. You need healing? There's grace for healing. You need deliverance? There's grace for deliverance. If you need transformation, there's grace for transformation. And what we say in all this, let me tell you, we should all be running boldly all the time to the throne of grace because we have deeds in every single one of these areas. So <clears throat> the sense I get from verse 16 is this. Since Jesus came boldly to the throne of grace as he walked this earth and always found grace from the Father and mercy to meet him in his time of need, and he had times of need, he got up early in the morning to commune with the Father because he had times of need. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he had a time of need. And he was communing with the Father, but ju just as Jesus did that, and he always found grace to help him in time of need. You and I can come boldly, totally dependent. Somebody say totally dependent. <laughs> totally dependent doesn't mean you don't have any recourse. Totally dependent means you do have one recourse. And that one recourse is the throne of grace in the presence of Almighty God. And Jesus uh, was able to find grace to help him in his time of need. The assurance here is in the Word of God that you and I can also find grace to help us in our time of need. And then he says, uh, Him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame and am set down with my Father in his throne. Well, thank you for letting me get that off my chest tonight. You are a great blessing and help and encouragement to me. Thank you. Thank you.